Good morning, brothers and sisters. I learned about a saint this past week. I'd never even heard of them before, knew nothing about them, and I was really impressed by what I heard, and I thought I would share them with you today. And most likely, I'm going to butcher their last name. It's Chinese, but I'm going to do my best. His name is St. Mark G. Changqing. That's the best pronunciation I can do. Forgive me if it's wrong. It's a long Chinese last name, so you can try to look it up if you want. So he's a Chinese layman who is a martyr. He died in the year 1900 under what we historically refer to as the Boxer Rebellion, in which many Catholics and Christians were put to death in China. And he was canonized by St. John Paul II. There's something very interesting about this one in particular, but I want to remind you the reason that the church sets up the saints, or I would say Christ sets up the saints, is to be an example to us, not only to intercede for us, but also to be an example of how to turn to the Lord, how to grow in holiness. And we see this in the majority of the lives of the saints, especially when we know their history. We see that they may have lived sinful lives, but then they convert, they repent, and they grow in holiness. You see, in our first reading from the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, obviously speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling the people to heed the voice of God and to keep all of his commandments and statutes. If you do this, you'll be blessed. So all you have to do is obey all of God's commandments, and then everything will go well for you, right? Well, we have a problem relating to that because we struggle and we constantly fail. And again, the church sets up saints as, see, they learn to do it, you can too. That's kind of the mentality and the idea. One of the most famous sinner turned saint is, of course, Augustine. Everybody loves Augustine. He's a really wild guy and lived a very pagan and sinful life, but he has this big conversion. He turns to the Lord, and now he's this amazing saint. He clearly learned to be virtuous and grew in holiness by the grace of Christ and his efforts. So this is the typical example we receive from the saints. But this is not exactly who St. Mark G. Changqing was. You see, what you might not know about him is he struggled with addiction his whole life. And not just any addiction, drug addiction. He was addicted to opium. If you're not familiar with opium and its history, you can make heroin out of opium. Heroin is basically a purified form, a chemically purified form of opium. So this was back in, again, he died in the year 1900. He was addicted to opium for most of his life. I don't know the circumstances as to how he got addicted. And he never was able to break this addiction till the day he died. And yet he's still a saint. He still gave his life for Christ. Another interesting fact about St. Mark is that during the last 30 years of his life, his local priest refused to give him sacraments because the priest was convinced that he just wasn't working hard enough. He wasn't repenting sufficiently enough. This is why he couldn't get over his addiction. So for the last 30 years, he couldn't go to confession. He couldn't receive communion. He couldn't be anointed. Absolutely no sacraments. He had to go to Mass every Sunday, never receiving the Eucharist, until the day he died. 
Now, I, I was, shall we say, pleasantly surprised by the life of this saint because I recognize in him a great hope, not only for all of us sinners who struggle, but especially for addicts. The church has not always had a good understanding of the nature of addiction. And so, for the most part, she's made the assumption, well, if you just repent well and work harder, you'll get over it. God will give you the grace. Now, even though that's not like an official teaching of the church, that's been the common interpretation and practice by priests and bishops over the last 2,000 years. It doesn't mean all of them have, but many of them have. Because, again, that's what we see in the lives of the very obvious saints. They may have lived a sinful life before, but they overcame it. Yet here we have a saint of the church, canonized in our day and age, who never got over his addiction while he was alive. The church's teaching now, her understanding of addiction has improved in the last century, I would say. Addiction, by its definition, is enslavement of the will, meaning you actually don't have the ability to refuse the impulse. If he were struggling in this day with that type of addiction, a pastor following the church's current knowledge and understanding would actually probably let him go to communion as long as he was continuing to fight the addiction, even if he failed over and over again. The way we can understand this is that we know the church teaching. If I've committed a mortal sin, I'm not to receive Holy Communion until I've gone to confession. Why? Because I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? I'm the dwelling place of God. And when I receive Jesus in Holy Communion, God is actually dwelling in me. Now, if my soul, this temple, is tainted by grave sin, it's unworthy to house God. So I have to let God cleanse the temple in confession before I come and receive God in the Eucharist. That's the order, that's the way it's taught and always been done. But a mortal sin requires three things. Not all grave sins or all serious sins are mortal sins. They can be, but not all of them are. So the first requirement for an action to be a mortal sin is it's got to be grave. It's got to be serious. So if I'm really upset with you, maybe we got in an argument, and I take your favorite pencil, and I just break it right in front of you, and because I, I did that to hurt you, and I wanted to upset you, and you're devastated, that can't be a mortal sin. It's a pencil. It's a pencil. Now, if I shot you because I was angry with you, okay, totally different caliber, literally, and uh, so, you know, that, that would be a grave sin. Whether I killed you or not, that's serious enough to be grave. That's attempted murder. Very serious. So that's grave objectively. And so we know what's grave. The church teaches us these things. You can read your catechism, read reflections on the Ten Commandments and the seven deadly sins, and you can come to a better understanding of what is grave and what isn't grave. So the first requirement of a mortal sin is it has to be grave. The second requirement is that you have to know it's grave. If you don't know it's grave, if it's serious then you can't be held responsible for the full effect of the moral consequence, shall we say. For example, Catholics know 
because the church has taught us very clearly and rightly that contraception in marriage is a grave moral offense to the dignity of the persons and to the good of God's order. But how many Protestants or pagans don't know that? So they could be using contraceptives, and yet it's not a mortal sin for them. It's sinful. It's a venial sin for them, certainly. But it's not mortal. They don't know. They're ignorant. So in their ignorance, God can be merciful. And I know some of you are thinking, well, well, shucks. They get the easy way out, right? We Catholics have to carry all the burdens of truth. And this is true in a sense. We talk about Catholic guilt. We have more guilt than everybody else because we know all of the sins better than they do. But remember, Jesus says, the truth will set you free. They, in their ignorance, are living a lie. And they can be enslaved by that lie. They're not truly free. So knowledge is necessary for the full impact of a grave sin on the soul of the individual. You have to know it's grave. So it's got to be grave. You have to know it's grave. And the third thing is, and this is the clincher, you have to freely choose it. You have to freely choose it. The example that's usually used in moral theology is somebody puts a gun to your head and says, do this or I'm going to kill you. You're obviously under duress. Now, I'm not saying you should do whatever they're telling you to do, but because of that duress, you're not acting freely of your own volition. Your will is not free to choose. You're being coerced or forced into choosing. But this can also happen under the influence of addiction. When somebody is truly addicted to fill in the blank, right? You know there are many, many things a person could be addicted to. Their will is not free. The addiction itself is a type of enslavement forcing their will. Sometimes they may go along with it. Sometimes they may be resisting. But in the end, more often than not, they can't refuse it. They're not strong enough. The idea is if you just repent well enough and work hard enough, your will will grow, and then you'll be able to overcome it. That is not always the case. We clearly see that in St. Mark Chi Tang Ching. Okay, we're going to keep working on that last name. So, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, many of you know my, one of my favorite saints, actually talked about this issue in moral theology. He said that we would think if you really want to turn from sin and grow in holiness, and if you're trying to live in the sacraments of Christ's church, that God will give you the grace to do that, right? And yet, Bernard says, we can clearly see he doesn't. There are many times in which it doesn't seem that God is helping you overcome a serious sin, and you continue to fall and struggle. And he says that we don't know why God does this. We don't know why God allows certain people to remain in a certain sin. But St. Bernard's belief is that God allows it for the sake of the virtue of humility. Because humility is the most important virtue anyone can possess. God allows them to fall into a sin to help deepen their humility. Because humility is more pleasing to God than anything. God can more easily forgive those sins as long as they're humble and repentant. Berner's famous quote, the three greatest virtues 
Humility, humility, humility. You can imagine for St. Mark, he was an incredibly humble man. He continued to be faithful to Christ even when he was refused the sacraments. He couldn't even go to confession. He continued to go to Mass every Sunday and Holy Day, even though he could never receive the Eucharist until the day he died. Even though I think, technically, the priest's decision, his pastor's decision, was incorrect, he was obedient to that decision. Just imagine the profound humility of this man, and it's probably because, in part, his addiction. Nothing teaches humility like failure. Nothing teaches humility like failure. You see this in individuals who have really exceptional skills, like amazing athletes who have never lost a game or a tournament, really smart people who get straight A's easily without studying. They become arrogant, and they can't relate to other people who have weaknesses and struggles. They're like, yeah, just got to do what I do, work harder. You don't have to work on it. It's natural gifts. Failing, especially for us in regards to sin, is always used by God to help us grow in that important virtue. And the response to sin, of course, is repentance. St. Mark lived a life of repentance. And he was given the greatest honor that any Christian could be given by God. He was given the honor of dying for Christ. He's a martyr for Christ and a declared saint in the church and an example to us all. So, in regards to addiction, I think it's important that I share a little more information because maybe you're addicted to something in your life. Maybe you have family or friends who may be addicted, and this will help you be more understanding and compassionate to them and more understanding and compassionate to yourself. It's highly imprudent and unwise to attempt to diagnose your own addiction. Just because you think you're addicted to whatever doesn't mean you are addicted. If you're not sure, you need to talk to your confessor. If he's not sure, maybe see a counselor or psychologist. Get more professional advice. Just because you have a habit of committing a sin doesn't mean you're enslaved to that sin. Maybe you aren't working hard enough. Maybe you aren't repenting well enough to overcome it. Maybe that is the reason. But maybe you're doing everything in your power and you are truly addicted. Well, again, your, your, your pastor, your confessor, spiritual director, counselor can help then give you advice and direction. So if I, if somebody comes to me in confession and if I diagnose them as addicted to X, Y, and Z, this is what I will typically tell them. Just because you're addicted doesn't mean every time you commit that sin, it's not mortal. Addiction doesn't mean you can't commit a mortal sin in that way. It just means it might not be. You know, if, if I'm addicted to alcohol, but I don't want to stop drinking, and I don't think I should have to confess it, and I don't think it's a big deal, then I'm guilty of the mortal sins that I'm accumulating, even though I am actually addicted. The only way an addict cannot be morally culpable for a mortal sin is if they're trying 
to overcome the addiction. They recognize it for what it is, right? They, they, they have faith in, the, in, in Christ and in his church and in her teachings. And so they accept the fact that the church says this is wrong, therefore it is wrong, I believe it. So that's the, the first stance. A, anybody from AA understands, you know, the, the first stage is recognizing that you have a problem. <laughs> if you don't recognize that, then, then just, there's nothing we can do for you. Even God can't work with you. So as long as the addict recognizes that what they're doing is objectively wrong, even though it might not be mortal for them, and they are trying within their knowledge and power to fight that addiction, to overcome that weakness, then it is certainly possible that when they commit that sin, it's not mortal, even though for other people it would be. That means if it's not mortal, it's just venial, right? There's no third degree of sin. It's either deadly or it's not deadly. That means they can go to communion even before having gone to confession. But there are a few points of advice I always give addicts. You need to make a more regular habit of going to confession. Even though you might not have to go, one of the requirements for fighting your addiction is regular confession. That's one of the proofs that you're trying. So at the absolute bare minimum, once a month, but I would even recommend every two weeks. If it helps your conscience, go every week, fine. But if you can't get to confession, fine. Just go to communion, then get to confession on your next available schedule. There's another thing I require for addicts. Because one of the temptations whenever you fall into a sin, whether you're an addict or not, is what's the point of praying? It's the basic temptation of sinners. What's the point of praying? God's not going to listen to me. I'm in sin. So that is, on some level, an act of despair or despondency. And it is a lack of faith, as if God doesn't love you just because you're a sinner. That contradicts the very message of the crucifixion. He loves you because you're a sinner. <laughs> In fact, he has more pity on you because of it. Just like as you parents, if you see one of your children suffering with some weakness, and yet they come to you, and they're humble and repentant, you're actually more compassionate to them than to the rest of the kids. If that's true for you, it's even more true for the Lord. So even though you may be in sin, mortal or otherwise, you cannot cease your prayers. And so I'll tell the, the addict, okay, one of the proofs that you're trying to fight this is, even though you fall into the addiction, you're still saying your prayers each day. You're still coming to church on Sundays and Holy Days, at least, even if you don't receive communion. You're still trying again, like St. Mark, to be faithful to the Lord. You do these things, regular confession, your best fidelity to prayer, daily prayer, and you're continuing to work on the addiction, you know, by, if you're an alcoholic, going to AA. There, there are groups that help with that. If you take basic steps to try to fight your temptation, then it's not mortal for you if you're addicted. And so you don't have to worry about your salvation. And as an example, we have this great saint. So I recommend you look him up, get to know him, seeking his intercession, not only for your own struggles in sin, but for any family members or friends who may struggle with addiction. 
But even if that's not a problem you've ever had, you need to learn to have the compassion and the mercy of Christ for those who may struggle. And I think there's other examples in the history of the church of saints such as St. Mark Chi Tsang Ching. And I think the most famous is the good thief, St. Dismas. We don't know whether he was an addict or not, but we know he was a good sinner. We know he was really good at it, right? Here's the good thief being crucified for his crimes, and yet he's a saint of the church. If you know the story well, Jesus was crucified with two thieves, one on his right, one on his left. And during the crucifixion, one of the thieves, we call him the bad thief, one of the thieves says to Jesus, if you are the Christ, come down from that cross and take us with you. The other thief, the good thief, Dismas, points out why the other thief is bad. And he says to him, no, you and I deserve to be up here. You and I deserve to be here. But this man is innocent. He turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, the reason our Lord was pleased with Dismas is because he accepted his cross, literally his cross. He accepted it because he knew he was a sinner. He was humble. He was repentant. Till the day he died, he was a sinner, and yet he was humble and repentant. And our Lord said some of the most beautiful words in Scripture to him. This day you will be with me in paradise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.